Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jodie Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Mari Lee, and we are going to be talking about women who have experienced sexual deception and betrayal due to their partner's sex and porn addiction. Mari is a licensed marriage and family therapist certified in sex addiction and partners betrayal, trauma and mindfulness. She is the founder of Growth Counseling located in California. Mari is recognized for her work with sex addicts, betrayed spouses and couples healing from infidelity. Mari is the author of Healing from Betrayal and the Creative Clinician and the co-author of Facing Heartbreak, Steps to Recovery for Partners of Sex Addicts. Her next book, The Gift in the Wound, will be out in 2021. She is a popular speaker presenting on sex and love addiction and betrayal trauma. Finally, Mari is a trusted business coach to healing professionals around the world. Welcome, Mari. Jody, so great to be here with you. Yeah, so we were just saying beforehand, we've probably known each other now online for about 10 years. And I've just got to say, we've got a personal connection on on Facebook as well. And I just have always felt a real sort of kindred sort of spirit with you. We love the same programs on Netflix and just your authenticity. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Thank you so much, Jody. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of yours. Love your podcast. Love the good work that you're doing in the world. And it's really an honor. And yes, I, I adore our personal connection. And I look to you. We share our book list and our we do. list and, <laughs> and other, and other things. So thanks so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. Would you tell our listeners about yourself and what led you to this work? Sure, I would be happy to. So I came into this particular specialization of betrayal trauma when I was, many moons ago, when I was in my graduate studies, trying to settle in on what my thesis topic would be. As we know, you know, that's mm. a research-based right mm-hmm. uh, topic that is takes up about two years of one's academic life. So I thought because I had spent my early years in foster care, which is our um, children's services system mm. <laughs> here in the United States, as a foster kid or former foster kid, I thought it would be a good topic for me to focus my attention on in my graduate studies. But during that time of trying to settle in on what that topic would look like, I discovered that my significant other at that time, somebody that I was very much in love with, had known for a long time, was, you know, what I thought, you know, we were in a very happy and connected relationship. He was profoundly addicted to pornography. Mm. I would say that I am not a sexual prude by any stretch of the imagination, though I am not one to support the pornography industry because of sexual trafficking. So Mm. that was well known to him. And it was heartbreaking on many levels. Also, that uh, discovery led to other discoveries of other sexual indiscretions that had happened and betrayals in the relationship. So going through a graduate program, working full-time at the time, juggling another part-time gig, and then dealing with this devastation in my personal relationship was challenging, to say the least. And again, this happened, you know, 20 years ago. Mm. And at that time, Jody, there really wasn't a lot of information. It was scarce out there. There was very little information for betrayal trauma. The verbiage betrayal trauma was not a part of our vernacular at that time. And betrayed partners were really sort of told to stay on their side of the street, 
to don't bother the person who's dealing with a sexual compulsivity, sometimes painted as prudes or sexually yep. negative. Uh, it was really difficult. So the book that I'm writing, as you mentioned, The Gift in the Wound, the gift in my wound at that time was I was determined to be a first advocate for other partners. At the time, women, but now women, men, and non-binary human beings and put a face to this. I knew there must be other women and men out in the world who are dealing with this and to create materials that would support healing. Mm. And so I dove really headfirst into a very rigorous and robust journey of researching betrayal trauma. And I'm very grateful that that original thesis and work became the foundation for, of course, Facing Heartbreak and other materials that we now use as part of Partners Healing. So that is part of my journey, of course, were many ups and downs, and (laughs) it was a wide but that's the, the, the nugget of it all. So we're going to be talking about women who have experienced sexual deception and betrayal due to their partner using sex and porn. So we might actually start just for our listeners, let's start with what sex and porn addiction is. So in your book, you say that sex and porn addiction aren't just about sex. So can you help our listeners understand what it is? I'd be happy to. I think that's a great question. So when we think about a particular sex addiction or what I usually term as sexual, out of control, sexual behavior or sexual compulsivity, Mm -hmm. we're looking at a person who has an unhealthy relationship with sex. In other words, they're using, so some people might soothe emotional pain, stress, or or other areas of their life that that do not feel um, um, supportive for that human being by drinking their pain. Other people might smoke their pain. Yeah. Um, other individuals may gamble away their pain. Uh, some people may um, eat their pain to soothe. Yeah. Um, people who are sexually compulsive tend to sexualize their pain or eroticize their pain. So when we think about the criteria involved, we want to think about that as attempts to stop the out-of-control sexual compulsive behavior. So there have been attempts there, right? There have been promises that have been made and broken repeatedly to self and also to loved ones, right? I promise I won't do this anymore. Mm. I don't know what's going on. It's never going to happen again. This was a one-time thing. There are negative consequences. So those negative consequences might include increased hostility in the primary relationship, or there might be impact on an academic lifestyle. So maybe a Mm -hmm. suspension or poor grades or failing grades. There may be career difficulties or sexual harassment lawsuits. There could be other legal issues such as arrests if illegal activities are involved, uh, money spent, hidden accounts, Other negative consequences could be loss of a support system, people just saying, I've had enough, I'm leaving. Adult children saying, I don't want to have a relationship with you. Mm. Um, Divorce. Oftentimes, we know that any addiction thrives in secrecy and isolation. So it's not unusual at all for these individuals to be isolating. They report deep feelings of loneliness, lack Mm. of social interaction, There's sometimes an increase in what we call multiple addiction interaction. So that could be an increase in drinking or smoking or drug use, for example. And in some cases, there have been suicidal attempts for individuals who simply are experiencing so much shame and don't aren't really aware of the resources available or what's going on. I just want to come to something, and I haven't asked you this in advance, so I hope it doesn't throw you off too much. Both of us are in a lot of therapist groups online, and I am noticing that if anyone posts anything negative about porn, that the therapists are actually coming out and saying, we promote porn use, and like sex therapists are actually promoting porn use. So when you read out that list... To me, and I'm with you, I say I'm not a prude at all, but I, I do see it as very harm, harmful, mostly because of exactly like you say. Um, so 
what do you say about that? What do you think about that where people are promoting porn? And look, often they promote ethical porn so that it's not with people who are sex trafficked. But my experience is that people who are using porn are actually just Googling porn and getting one of those first three sites that come up, which are like YouPorn or Pornhub or something like that. So they're not actually using ethical porn anyway. What would you say about that? Yeah, thank you for that question, Jody. It's a really good question. And I see that as well. And this has been sadly, you know, sort of an age old argument between the camps, Mm. Um, an argument that I really don't get myself involved in, because Mm. what I know is, is what I see coming into my practice every day. Mm. And so not every person who looks at porn is a sex addict. Mm. That's Mm. really important to say. And not every person who has unhealthy sexual behaviors or compulsive sexual behaviors or out of control sexual behaviors is addicted to porn, Mm. right? So- Mm -hmm. That's really important to say. I think that it's perfectly lovely if a couple is in agreement. Um, So, for example, if I have a couple that comes into my practice and says something like, you know, Mari, we like to dress up in chicken suits and tie ourselves up in red ribbons and hang from the chandelier and spank each other. You know, are we, you know, are we sex addicts? Well, are, are both of you adults? You know, no children involved, no animals involved, everyone consenting, you have mm-hmm. your safe words in place. Yes, on all fronts. Oh, sounds like you guys have uh, an interesting and fun and perfectly healthy uh, way of being sexual with one another that works well for you. Mm. Um, Let's say they come in and they're looking at porn where people are having consensual erotic sex together and it is mutually Mm. acceptable in the relationship. It's something that they use as a tool to enhance their sexuality in the relationship. And again, no one is being trafficked, no children are involved, Um, everyone is consenting in the pornography, uh, no animals involved, then wonderful, enjoy, right? I would say if there are themes, so if there's um, a pain exchange in that particular ethical porn, and that is of concern to one of the people in the coupleship, then we can explore that and see what that is, right? Mm. So we want to be very careful about pathologizing um, healthy sexuality, healthy erotic ways that couples interact with one another. We want to be very careful about pathologizing fetishes. Um, And at the same time, we want to be thoughtful about What are the roots to the fruit? If you like to be whipped Mm. and tied, great. So, and if there's any concern in that for you and that behavior or that way of, of exploring your sexuality, then we can discuss that. My role is not to pathologize or be the penis or the vagina police. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> and the specialization to be policing someone's, you know, sexuality. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not what this is about. And I think sometimes there are people who in our community, in our clinical mm-hmm. community, there are therapists who assume when they hear about the work that myself and thousands of other colleagues are doing to support healing with human beings who are hurting because of their sexual choices, that they are assuming then that we are sex negative, or that we are apologizing, or that we are the moral penis and vagina police. And that Mm -hmm. is the furthest thing from the truth. So I hope that conversations like the one that we're having today, Jody, can shed some light, you know, on this very complex work that I do and that others do. Yeah, thank you so much for clearing that up. And I really love the way that you've explained that because I couldn't put it in words as clear as that. So thank you. You're welcome. So let's come back to the betrayed person now. So what is sexual deception and betrayal for them? What is that? Well, one, I think we have to be very clear that that is different for every single person. betrayed partner, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to be careful, right, when I answer this, not to simply think about every partner's betrayal trauma being exactly the same, which I know you know that, Jody, but just for the sake of conversation here. So for the partners that I work with, each story is unique. 
However, the responses to either the disclosure, meaning that their partner has disclosed to them the deception or the betrayal, or oftentimes the discovery of finding Mm -hmm. out this information, which is part of my story. This was never disclosed. It was all discovery or a staggered disclosure, which would look like, yes, just this one time, but it will never happen again. But wait a minute. um, You said that it was only one time, but then this, well, yeah, I forgot about that, but, but now really that was it. And it was just flirting, but here's a picture of you both kissing. Well, I mean, yeah, kissing, but nothing else. Well, now there's a hotel receipt. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, we met for a drink at a hotel, but it has a room number on. Well, yeah, that, you know, Mm. the staggered disclosure, which is the gaslighting piece of the betrayal trauma, which for most partners, not all, but most partners, that gaslighting aspect, the being lied to over and over again, is the most difficult part of the betrayal, because there is no place in which to set your feet on firm ground. It feels Mm -hmm. like, okay, so this happened. I'm hearing you. You've made this mistake. You're taking ownership. And now I'm hurt. I'm angry. I'm confused. I feel betrayed. But we're agreeing that we're going to heal and get better. But now there's more information that's being trickled in over and over and over again. Where do we begin? The beginning, right? The start line keeps getting moved forward. Mm. And so for partners, that is what then increases their traumatic experience. And 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, Jody, betrayal trauma wasn't even considered a traumatic mm-hmm. response. Partners were vilified for checking or some mm-hmm. of these safety-seeking behaviors that partners engage in, whether where they were it was called snooping or interrogating. So betrayal trauma shows up differently for each partner, mm-hmm. but Typically speaking, some of the ways that it shows up in my uh, work with partners is I have partners who are anxious, who have never experienced anxiety on this level before, partners who are experiencing clinical depression, partners who are experiencing insomnia, certainly understandable feelings of rage, they're confused. Mm -hmm. Um, They have now increased body image issues where they're experiencing self-loathing toward their body. They have deep insecurity. They are afraid. They feel a sense of shame, meaning that I don't want anybody to know about this. What if my church community or my family or our friends found out about this? What about his work? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if there's arrests or anything illegal involved, there can be an increase in weight, a decrease in weight. These partners are isolating. They experience somatic symptoms like migraines, uh, gut issues, back pains. They feel crazy. They share that all the time. I feel like I'm crazy. Mm. You know, I'll say something, you have evidence, and he lies, and then I find it, and I find out I'm not crazy after all. Mm. They become paranoid. Um, They are not able to concentrate like they once um, could on child rearing on work responsibilities, sometimes having to take a leave of absence, drop out of school. There are just so many, so much impact, so much traumatic impact on partners because of this type of betrayal trauma. And I'm thinking too, and I didn't mention this, I didn't even think about this when I was uh, reading it earlier, but just the impact, if, if the partner is married and has children too, and, you know, thinking about the impact that that will have, you know, on the whole family, really. Mm-hmm. It's a systemic issue, as we know, addiction always mm. is, right? Mm. Isn't an isolated, I exist, the addict exists in a bubble, and his, her, or their behaviors don't impact those around them. Mm. So. That is a trauma as well, especially if there's been, if the addict has been fired, has spent you know, exorbitant amounts of money, which happens you know, often, has been arrested, is going to be publicly outed. I work with public figures. So a lot of times what drives these public figures, whether they're in politics or in athletics or in the entertainment industry or the music industry, is that this could possibly come out in the media. Mm. So that is typically what drives them into therapy. But thankfully, once in therapy, they see the benefits of that. So yeah, it's it's a broad trauma for sure. 
And so you you write in your book that healing betrayal, that the betrayed partner has feelings of shock, betrayal, anger, hurt, confusion, and you find that they often become engaged in a process of safety checking behaviours. And you briefly just touched on them before, but I just wanted to expand on that a little bit. So can you please share with our audience what safety checking behaviours actually are? Yes, thank you, Jody. I'd be happy to go into that more deeply. So when we think about safety checking or safety seeking, these are behaviors like breaking into the email, spending hours and hours, sometimes weeks at a time, trying to figure out the passcode, putting uh, monitoring devices on the car, putting hidden speakers in particular areas of the room, hiding cameras in rooms, interrogating, where were you? How do I know that? Show me proof. Digging through text messages, going through phone records, uh, looking through credit card statements, following, hiring private detectives to follow. So when we think about these safety-seeking behaviors, that is what the partner is attempting to do. They are attempting to mitigate more trauma coming into their lives. They're attempting mm. to, in a sense, control the outcome, the pain outcome, which of course we know that it is impossible to control a person with out-of-control addictive behaviors. So partners don't know this if they don't have tools for these triggers. I equate it to So my girlfriend is married to a police officer, Mm. and it was interesting at a dinner party last year to learn that here in the U.S., one of the top crimes is identity theft and fraudulent uh, breaking into people's bank accounts and and stealing income and credit card information and all of that. So when I was listening to this really interesting information that this officer was sharing, I started thinking about, well, that's very similar to what partners share. Mm. In other words, if somebody broke into your bank account, Jody, and they emptied your hard-earned savings account, and they charged up a bunch of money, and they stole your identity, how often do you think that you would be checking that bank account to make sure that the bank was on top of that, that to make sure that they were taking steps to protect you? I would say daily might be a good average. Now, let's say that happened again. And so you change bank accounts and you close accounts and you do everything you can to protect yourself. But then it happens at this new institution again and again. Mm. Suffice to say, you or I or anyone would be doing all we could to protect our assets and to protect ourselves against that kind of trauma. So with partners, when they are seeking safety, what do they have available to them? They're going to look at social media. Mm. They're going to scan in a hypervigilant way mm. uh, any information that could potentially be hidden from them and attempt to keep themselves safe. Mm, they yeah. don't typically have tools to allow for boundaries, consequences, and safety requests. They have no way of knowing what the truth is because they've been gaslit for so long. So to pathologize partners for that kind of behavior, to call them co-addicts, to Mm. tell them to stay in their lane, to shame them for these kinds of understandable behaviors, though it is not healthy to continue in that kind of safety seeking and that type of uh, hypervigilance. But to do that from a therapeutic standpoint is not clinically sound. No. And it's really important you mentioned this on, on two points. Firstly, from therapists, and, and that is, that's exactly what's happened to people, but also for themselves, because often I found that the partner is gaslighting the person as well. You know, if, if they start those checking behaviours, that they get pathologised by the partner too. Is that your experience? To clarify, Jody, so what I'm hearing is that the partner then begins to engage in gaslighting. Yeah, the the, the, the one that's being traumatized by saying, you know, calling them whatever for checking their, their accounts or for checking, for snooping at the moment, snooping in inverted commas online. So what ends up happening is, is, is that the person who's been betrayed feels like they're the one going mad once again. Yes, that's absolutely accurate, where they're being shamed or yelled at or threatened in some way with with the addicted person not understanding what they're witnessing in the betrayed partner, their betrayed partner, the person they have betrayed is a post-traumatic stress response. Yeah. 
So we've talked about the experiences that the betrayed person can end up with the anxiety, depression, that list you went through before. But what's sort of happening at a deeper level, I think, I guess, so in terms of they found out that their partner is doing this and in your book you've written that they start to go through the grief cycle. Would you help our listeners understand a little bit more about that? I'd be happy to, yeah. What I began to notice in year after year working with partners, and Jody, it's probably important for me to share as well that I work equally with individuals who struggle with sexual compulsivity. So the first year of my clinical work, postgraduate work, was specifically focused on partners. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that if I'm going to really understand this complex specialization, in its entirety, it was important for me to be certified in the work and to work with people who are struggling with this addiction. So I work equally with partners and addicts. But Mm -hmm. with respect to your question on the grief process, I noticed sort of mirrored this idea of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, Mm -hmm. acceptance, which we know is sort of, I don't know, I kind of look at it, to be honest with you, as an outdated grief model when we think about grief, because grief doesn't really, it's not A to B, right? B to C, C to D. Grief doesn't work that way. Exactly. Ebbs and flows. And it's the same for the grief cycle. But just to give it some sort of foundation here, typically what will happen is there is shock and denial, right? I can't believe this is happening. I thought we had a wonderful relationship, but maybe I'm making too much out of this. Am I crazy? Maybe it'll be fine. So sort of this denial piece, right? Yeah. And then the anger quickly follows. And the anger, again, remember, these are interchangeable. The anger may, may be the first step in this yeah. grief process. Why me? Why us? How in the world is this person doing this to me? How could you ruin our relationship, our marriage this way? This isn't the dad or the mom that I thought I had. I can't believe this. I'm furious. And sometimes it goes into this bargaining stage of if only they will change, only if they will please change and heal and get the support and get into recovery and stop the lying and stop this kind of behavior, I'll do anything. Whatever needs to happen, I'll pay for it. I will go to therapy with them. I will hide the information. I'll carry the secret, right? Whatever I need to do. So sort of this bargaining, right? And typically that will lead into, because you cannot control a person who is out of control, Mm. control any other human being, right? I feel so depressed. So this goes into this place of depression. I feel depressed. I feel betrayed. I don't know where to turn. I don't have hope. I don't know what to do. I feel stuck. I feel alone. I feel ashamed. I feel afraid. And then that sometimes will lead into a uh, sort of this cycle of acceptance. Okay, this is happening. I'm not crazy. And I can't control this person. Nothing I'm trying is working. So I really need to work with a therapist, work with a support system, and get the help that I need and learn the tools that I need to help me get better. So again, that denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, Jody, mm. that can be interchanged. It's not of course to yeah. right? But it is what I do notice that comes in to my practice often. Yeah, it's really important that you mentioned the the cycle, that it isn't linear. I mean, it might be for some people, but for most people, they kind of dip in now and, and actually then take one step forward and two steps back. And then you might end up accepting a, a little bit, but then going back to anger. <laughs> That's my experience anyway. So yes, absolutely. You're correct. Very, very true. And, and I think if I might touch on an important aspect of addiction is to understand that not all addiction is equal, right? When we talk about sex addiction, Mm -hmm. sometimes we're talking about, so in my supervision with therapists from all around the world, right? I've met so many wonderful healers around the world as a supervisor for the CSET certification, the CPIT certification and the MBET certification, but in my various supervisory roles, I remind my fellow clinicians that it is so important to look through the dual lens 
of your license, right? So we're not just looking at somebody who might be compulsive in their sexuality and immediately after we take them through the assessments, only putting them in that category of sex addiction or hypersexual behavior. We want to do rule outs. We want to know, you know, is this person dealing with bipolar disorder? Is this person actually is what we're seeing? Is this OCD? If this person is collecting thousands of pornographic images, now we're looking at a different level of compulsivity. Are we really looking at OCD and not hypersexuality? Are we looking at a person who is dealing with multiple addictions? Is this an anxiety disorder that we're seeing? And so it could be both, right? There could be a dual diagnosis, but it's important to look at that as well as a personality disorder, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to go through our cluster B and see if this Mm -hmm. is falling into a personality disorder, or are we looking at somebody who is sociopathic, uh, psychopathic, or narcissistically wounded? Mm. So when we think about somebody, I don't, I tend to look at narcissism as a personality trait versus a disorder, although the behavior can be quite disordered, right? So if you're a partner and your primary relationship, your significant other is a narcissist, then this is part of their entitlement. They feel entitled to have their cake and not have the calories to have their cake and eat it too. Mm. They feel entitled to that lying. They may feel some remorse. They may even want to make a few changes, but it's unlikely without ongoing intensive therapy that a narcissistically wounded, and I understand this is a traumatic wounding, Mm. but that narcissistically wounded human being will make those changes. It's very important to share that. When we think about sex addiction, just because somebody presents in my practice, or if it's a a spouse mandated or Mm. partner mandated person, right, who they're being dragged into my practice, And they say, well, I I think my significant Heather is a sex addict, or I think I'm dealing with hypersexual behavior. We go through assessments, right? We go through not only our clinical assessments, right? Our psycho and social and bio assessments, but we go through our trained assessments, the sexual dependency inventory, other trauma assessments, which are rigorous and detailed and um, take hours to go through. And we're trained in that so that we have some sort of baseline for this human being. So again, you know, it's an intense specialization and we want to be thoughtful about how we're diagnosing. Yeah, absolutely. I know when we were uh, just talking about uh, the grief cycle back there, we sort of came to acceptance and it it kind of got me thinking about um, healing and how someone who's been betrayed can start to heal. And so from your perspective, how do they begin to heal? So with partners, the first thing is understanding that trying to white knuckle and heal this this level of vitriol trauma all by yourself is so difficult. And any partner that would be listening to our conversation today, I would just gently encourage you to reach out for support. If finances are a struggle for you, there are materials, you know, of course, the workbook that I co-authored and other wonderful workbooks and books for partners, not just what I've authored, but other material out there that wasn't available many years ago. There are 12-step groups that are online now, which is great um, for partners. If 12-step isn't your thing, and you're, let's say, a person of faith, many churches now have groups that can support partners. If that isn't your thing, there are therapy groups in the community. If you are struggling with paying for therapy sessions, there are agencies now that will provide therapy either pro bono or for a very low fee. Now, the understanding, of course, is that you may not have a highly trained therapist in an agency like this, but every therapist should be willing to learn and pick up a book and read or pay for consultations with experts who can lead them through and help them with treatment planning. Going into therapy and working with the sponsor and being in group and a community of support is really the best defense and the best way of stepping into healing because you're going to be learning so many tools. You're going to be getting that support. Additionally, there is adjunct support like EMDR, which are our gold standard for trauma that your therapist either can provide or can refer you to somebody who can 
um, support the work through EMDR therapy. Additionally, you may want to get a psychiatric evaluation and work with a psychiatrist. If you are dealing with suicidal thoughts, Mm -hmm. if you are unable to get out of your bed due to your trauma and betrayal, and you need some sort of medication and psychiatric support to help you get your head and shoulders above the waterline so that you can begin to focus on your healing, then there is no shame in that. And that can be part of the treatment plan as well. Yeah. And would you just say something a little bit about protecting their own health and in terms of if they've found out that their partner is, I guess, having sex addiction, not so much porn, I I wouldn't think this would be an issue, but in terms of their sexual relationship, you know, should they stop having sex Do they need to have health checks? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so specifically when you come in and you work with um, a a sex addiction therapist, the very first things that you can expect are that therapist to ask you to get a physical. Even if your significant other is dealing with porn addiction, what I always say to partners is you don't know what you don't know. Okay, good, good point. So the sad impact of gaslighting, Jody is that it shreds that human being's intuition. Mm. And what I share with the um, individuals dealing with sexual compulsivity and sex addiction in my practices, really what you've effectively done is you've sent your significant other out in the world without their primary defense, you know, their intuition. So that is a very dangerous thing to do because when you shred a human being's intuition by gaslighting them over and over again, sometimes for decades, they begin to doubt their own reality. They begin mm-hmm. to doubt their gut. So if that nice guy out in the parking lot comes up to them in the evening while they're loading groceries and their gut is saying, get out of here, run, yell, push your mm-hmm. cart into this person, they may not do those things because they're doubting their reality from being gaslit for so long. Mm -hmm. So this is very dangerous. So what I always share with partners is we're going to be um, repairing your intuition, what's been shredded. We need to repair that so that you can learn to trust your gut, learn to trust. So if that partner is saying, I'm not getting why my straight male husband is looking at this kind of porn Mm. and why I found this on their phone. I wonder if they're having sex with X, Mm. Y, or Z outside of our relationship. Trust that. Don't assume that you're wrong. Trust that. So one, you want to make sure that you get a physical. Two, you want to request, although you cannot control your partner, the addict's behavior, you can't control this. You can request that they get a physical and a blood test as well, Mm -hmm. and that those results are shown to you. You want to know what your health is looking like. And absolutely, if you are in a relationship with somebody who's sexually compulsive or or has been diagnosed with sex addiction, you 100% want to protect yourself sexually. Mm -hmm. So all of that is what is put together is called a boundaries and safety plan. And that is the first stage of what we call formal disclosure. Um, I can go into that if you'd like, Jody. but that is the first stage of prepping for formal disclosure is helping that partner know, name, and learn how to maintain his, her, or their boundaries and express what the consequence will be. And what I share with partners, because this can be very confusing, a boundary is not a fence that we build around our partner. It's a fence that we build around ourselves. So if I have a neighbor whose dog is running into my yard and pooping on my grass, I'm not going to build a fence around my neighbor's yard. I can ask my neighbor, hey, you know, I love your dog. Don't mind if if the dog comes and plays in my yard, but would just ask that you clean up the dog poop, please. The neighbor, I have no control over that. The neighbor might say, no, I refuse to do that. And so I'm not then going to take the neighbor's dog away. I'm not then going to build a fence around the neighbor. I'm going to build a fence around my yard. And then that fence might have a gate and that gate might be left open if the neighbor comes over and says, you know, I was wrong. I want to do better. Can my dog still come and play in your yard? Sure. As long as you clean up the poop, then I open the gate. The boundaries, you know, change a bit. 
I watch and see if the words and behaviors of my neighbor are going to match. So I bring that example up because partners sometimes hear when they hear boundaries and consequences, it's scary for them. It feels like, oh gosh, Mari or my therapist is asking me to tell my significant other that if he, she, or they acts out in a way that breaks our um, agreement, our sexual agreement, I'm going to divorce them or break up with them. And that's not what we're saying, right? What we're saying is know what your boundaries are, have support in naming them, and then your boundaries will be tested and you'll need to maintain them. And consequences are the best way of maintaining them. And a consequence is not an ultimatum. A consequence might look like we have an agreement that you will not be seeking out sexual partners outside of our relationship. You use your phone and your laptop to do that. And I am no longer comfortable with your devices being in the home and not being filtered, right? There are Mm -hmm. filters that can be put on devices. You are an adult. You can choose not to support my boundary and safety request. The consequence, if you do not support that request, is I will continue to lose hope, respect, and trust in this relationship. I will continue to lose attraction toward you, faith in you. And eventually, the consequence will be, I will not want you in my bed. I will not want to have sex with you. I will ask you to sleep in another room. I will ask you to move out of the home. I will ask for a therapeutic separation. I will ask for a legal separation. And I may ask for a divorce. So there are stages sometimes to these consequences. But number one is protecting your health always. You actually write in your book about boundary letters. So is this all stuff that you would include in a boundary letter? And what we'll do is link in the show notes to your books anyway. But um, just just for our listeners, would you just give a little brief explanation around what that is? And I'm thinking that some of that information will go in a letter. Is that correct? Or Right. So when we talk about a boundary letter, that's exactly right. Just going through the various categories. Um, So I think about it as work boundaries, home life boundaries, child rearing boundaries, financial boundaries, spiritual boundaries, um, extended family boundaries, um, academic boundaries, um, etc. Sexual boundaries, of course. Um, So a so about so when we're going through those worksheets there are really specific worksheets that I developed as part of the formal disclosure packet and part of the partner's boundary and safety list. I'm honored that these now are gold standard materials that are used widely across the world in supporting um, partners and couples that are healing. And it's really important to use that in the context of the work, meaning that you are trained to do this work because it's very complex. But again, sort of generally speaking, yes, um, Uh, So there is a boundary and safety list that the partner will um, complete. The therapist walks the partner through these various categories that I just named. Mm -hmm. Um, The partner helps the, pardon me, the therapist helps the partner understand in the languaging of their boundaries, the difference between an ultimatum. So it would look like, and you, so an ultimatum would be, and you better not do this again, because if you do, I will sue your ass and I will announce it. I'll put up a billboard saying that you're a pervert and I'll, so those are threats. Those are ultimatums. This is not helpful, um, specifically not helpful, especially if we think about from a neurochemistry, you know, point of view, because the addict cannot hear that, right? They, uh, there's a, a wonderful part of the uh, limbic system called the amygdala, um, and that is closely located to the auditory canal. So if the partner understandably is throwing out threats and ultimatum, um, the the addict will shut down and, and simply cannot hear. They will flood. Now we have two people who are not communicating, right? Mm-hmm. Their prefrontal cortexes are not engaged. They are limbically activated. They are in their sympathetic nervous system, the fight, flight, freeze, or appease. They are not in their parasympathetic nervous system or their central nervous system, not in a place of homeostasis. So communication can't happen with threats and ultimatums with screaming and yelling. Mm-hmm. We have two flooded people then who are not hearing one another. So helping that partner learn tools to share her truth and her boundaries and helping her detach from outcomes that she can't control while she does everything that she can to take care of herself in that situation is 
imperative, Jody. And I guess I want to touch on this because I see this a lot in terms of, you know, I've worked, I work with women for 20 years with often significant complex trauma, childhood trauma, interpersonal trauma, and they have chronic low self-worth. So many women, and it's not just with this kind of stuff, but many don't feel like they have the right to set boundaries. They've often, as we've talked about already, experienced gaslighting. So you're overreacting. Everyone uses porn these days. The betrayed partner often feels like she's the problem because she's not feeling good about herself. And then this has accumulated over time and she feels worse and worse about herself. And she's been blamed by the partner in some way for him using um, sex or porn outside of the relationship. So if she's listening right now, what would you say to her? Yeah, so much compassion for the partners that I work with who come in and feel so fragile about finding a voice because their voice was invalidated, devalued, not heard, not given any worth or support in their family of origin growing up. And so for those partners, it becomes, you know, incredibly difficult to advocate for themselves in the relationship, especially if there's the gaslighting that has gone on for years and years, or if there's domestic violence present in the relationship. So as therapists, first, we want to assess for any critical issues that could endanger that partner who is trying to find his, her, or their voice, right, Jody. So making sure that they're not putting themselves in harm's way mm. and making sure that we have a safety plan in place for our partners who may be in these relationships. For partners who are not at imminent risk and are really challenged in finding their voices because of previous abuse and complex trauma, this is slow work. Mm. We must be very patient very compassionate, hold that safe container for that human being, hear her story and allow her voice to be validated in our work, in our therapy practices. So it may take a very long time for these wounded partners to move through that early trauma Mm -hmm. into finding their voice and feeling confident and even remotely comfortable in expressing what their boundaries and safety needs are. Uh, that can be, you know, what I call inchworm work, right? The inchworm work where we just have to poke along yeah. and hold, you know, compassionate, consistent space, reflecting compassion and empathy toward that partner while we inch her along and feeling like she's growing that muscle. Sometimes a partner won't even know what a boundary is. Jody, in my session, she'll say to me, I or he will, I don't even know what my boundaries yeah. are, I don't yeah. know if I have any. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll reach over if they have a purse in session or a briefcase and I'll reach over a backpack and I'll just reach over during session while they're chatting and I'll just start rummaging <laughs> through the purse or the, the backpack. And they'll stop and look puzzled and a little irritated and sometimes angry. It's Mari, what are you doing? I'll say, oh, I'm just looking through your purse. Is that not okay? Well, no. Can I have that back? Oh, is that a boundary? <laughs> yeah, good. that's great. And then, then that light bulb, right, will go off over their heads. Oh, oh, yes, right. So there we go, right? So that was little intervention there. You do have a boundary. So name that boundary with me. Let's do a little role playing. Well, I don't know. I just don't want you looking through my purse. Okay, can we put a little bit more teeth into that? You know, I don't want you looking through my purse, damn it. Okay, how about using I statements? In a different way, right? I would like you to let me know if you need something from my purse. My purse is my property. It's my private property. And I do not allow anyone to go through my private belongings Mm. without asking for permission first. If you choose to cross that boundary, then I choose to not have my person sessions. I choose to not be in this therapy relationship with you any longer. Mm. Please respect this boundary. So I help them just with little tiny pieces, the inchworm work. Sometimes they'll come in and they'll say, oh gosh, I'm sorry, I'm so hot. It's 105 degrees outside. I'm sorry, I hope I'm not too sweaty. Mm. I'm sorry, I hope I don't have body odor. Oh, I'm sorry. Could I have a glass of water? Mm. I'm sorry that I had to use the bathroom first and I'm a minute oh, late. Yeah. Right. And then helping them understand that they don't need to apologize 
for their real humanity, yeah. right? Just starting there, we have to start building from that core out. Yeah, and often actually I, I know myself having um, come from this background myself and uh, being in uh, not very healthy relationships way back before my therapy, always hoping that this person was going to change. And I guess for someone who's in a relationship like this, what what would you say to the partner who keeps hoping this person will change but the, the, but the person using continues to make ongoing sexually destructive choices? I would say that that is a traumatic wounding, discouraging, to say mm. the least. Mm. Um, it leaves a human being feeling discarded, without hope. But I would also remind, so I would validate, you know, those mm. very real and understandable emotions and feelings that they are experiencing. I would remind the partner that they have no control over that person who is refusing to get into recovery and move forward in their own recovery. I'd remind them that they must put their safety and their well-being, and if they have children, their children's well-being at the top of their list. And that change is hard, very hard, and healing is very difficult, but it is possible. And so in the beginning, right, they're going to be very triggered by what their partner is doing or not doing, the ongoing lies. But if we can just slowly, I kind of think about being a captain on a ship in a storm. If we can slowly together steer that boat back into waters that are their calm waters and create a place of groundedness, mindfully create that place of groundedness where the partner can begin to protect herself. I think a lot of partners, myself included, at that time, really look to the person who is hurting us to heal us. Mm, and that person yeah. is not capable of even healing themselves. That person who's out of control in their behavior is inconsistent and unpredictable. And you can't get healing and traction with inconsistency and unpredictability. So that person has, oftentimes even the couple has misunderstood, you know, and they don't understand the difference between intensity and they've been confused intensity with intimacy, Jody. And so yeah. intimacy doesn't include gaslighting and lies and hurtfulness. You know, this is many times with addicts and oftentimes with partners, an attachment disorder. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're starting to come to an end and I'm aware that we sort of, we haven't got through everything I wanted to ask you, but I guess I just, just in terms of the partner, I want to just come back and you say that they deserve their own therapy and you've written in your book around taking care of their own heart and reclaiming their value and self-worth. Is there anything else you would like to add to that for partners listening today? Yes, yeah, so I would say with partners, Jody, thank you for this question. Any partner listening, it's so important not to mirror the addictive process of isolation and secrecy. You know, you may be sitting on a big secret right now, and we are really only as sick as our secrets, as the saying goes. And so if you are involved in a relationship with somebody who is betraying you with, you know, sexual secrets or sexual betrayal, I have so much compassion as both a therapist and a woman who has walked that road. And I hope that you will reach out to at least one safe person in your life and share your pain points with that person, that you will be encouraged today to seek out therapy, that you'll be encouraged today to find a safe community of support for yourself, because you truly do deserve that. I hope today um, that you've learned that what you're experiencing um, has a very you know, real name with real symptoms, betrayal, trauma. And I also hope that you can understand in some small way that this cycle of addiction, because so many partners, Jody, want to know why, why, how did this happen? Mm. You know, it's so important to understand this is such a complicated formula. Typically, there's for addicts, there's a lack of healthy coping tools. There's this unresolved pain and trauma at their core. There are attachment problems in their early family of origin. There's, you know, confusing, like we touched on intensity with intimacy. Oftentimes addicts have this core schema of shame and secrecy. 
combined with just everyday stressors, and again, going back to the lack of healthy coping tools, this creates that perfect storm. And when we think about this sort of highly complex brain recipe that can become sort of hardwired, what fires together, wires together. Mm. So when we think about a brain recipe, and this is for partners just to have a little education around the why, we want to think about those neurochemicals, including dopamine, right? And dopamine is associated with pleasure. It's also associated with numbness. Mm. And the homeostasis for addicts is to numb. Um, it's also a brain recipe that includes adrenaline. And so we know that adrenaline is associated with fear and excitement. Oxytocin is another hormone that's associated with love and connections. Serotonin, which helps stabilize anxiety and stress and other endorphins. So these cocktail of endorphins can produce a sort of out-of-body experience. And the human orgasm is a powerful reinforcer of behavior. Mm. So when you have that reward center that is wired in, I'm having a bad day at work, I'm having a bad day, my significant other and I got in an argument, somebody cut me off, I'm feeling financial stress, the pandemic is getting to me, and they can quickly go to porn and download porn, they can get that quick hit of these things, or seek out prostitution or go to the strip club or whatever the addiction is. So this is an escape from reality. And that's why I say it's not necessarily about sex. There's a lot of complex systems involved in um, sex addiction and partners will often say, is it even real? So we want to mm. look at the science. We want to look at the research. So for partners listening to this, I hope that you will feel encouraged today to learn about your own trauma, to seek support for yourself, to understand that you cannot change. You can't love an addict into sobriety. You can't change mm -hmm. an addict. That addict has to be willing and want to be able to change themselves. And if they are out of recovery, then you need to do the things that you need to do to keep yourself safe. So that is what I would share as we begin to close, Jody. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Would you share your website and you can go over your books again and what I will do is link to them in the show notes. And when your new book is out, Mari, will you send the link through to me as well? And I'll make sure I add that to the show notes as well. How do people find you? Uh, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Okay. So they can find me via my counseling website, which is growthcounselingservices.com. And I know you'll provide the link. Yep. Um, I only work, of course, I'm licensed in the state of California in the United States. So I work with clients only in the U.S., um, but I can certainly uh, connect them. They can go to sexhelp.com and find trained therapists all over the world, including in Australia. Um, I also have a website called The Counselor's Coach for therapists and clinicians who would like um, consulting and this complex specialization, I have a lot of materials located on the um, toolbox page of the counselorscoach.com. And there are free tools and also paid tools like formal disclosure packets, the boundary and safety list packets, my healing from betrayal ebook is located both on the counselors coach website. It's also on my growth counseling services website for partners who are going through, they've just discovered this, or they've just had this disclosed to them, and they need immediate resources. That's a downloadable ebook. Um, my other books are, all of these books are located on Amazon. So Facing Heartbreak is a workbook that I co-authored that's located on Amazon, as is Healing uh, from Betrayal. Um, additionally, there's another great resource for therapists who are mindfulness and trauma-based therapists. So if you are a therapist who works with trauma and addiction, uh, Darren Ford with the Mindfulness Academy for Addiction and Trauma Training has a beautiful certification called the MBAT Certification Mindfulness-Based Addiction and Trauma Therapist. Really good certification. I teach a piece of that certification as well. So that is an excellent resource for therapists who are interested in learning more about this specialization and how to support uh, partners who are going through trauma and betrayal, as well as addicts who are dealing with sex addiction and hypersexuality. So I think that covers everything, Jody. And yeah, and just, just you asking me, thank you very much for allowing me to share that information. 
And just, yeah, just coming back to um, consultation, we, we in Australia and the UK and New Zealand and, and many other countries outside of the US are mandated uh, by our organisations to have monthly clinical supervision. So I know you um, only work with people in California for therapy. Do you work outside of the states for super? So just say, for example, someone, a therapist listening in Australia today wanted clinical supervision with you. You're able to do that? Absolutely, yes. Great. So Good. my license only holds me to clinical work with Great. patients in okay. California, but I provide consultation and supervision. In fact, I've, I've worked with three therapists in Australia. Oh, um, yes, and also the UK, um, Cairo, South America, my goodness, um, Canada, of course, across the United States. So I've had the honor of working with so many amazing healers all over the globe. Great. And I'm, I'm happy to do that if that's helpful for somebody listening. Perfect. So look, thank you so much for coming today. What uh, I really uh, have loved about today is that, you, you know, there is a lot about addiction out there and there are a lot of resources for people suffering with um, sex and porn addiction. Often the partner gets forgotten about and the fact that you are bringing that to the foreground, I just think that that's um, super. So thank you so much for coming. Jody, thank you so much for this time and this conversation. I've loved talking with you today and I want to thank you as well for the beautiful work that I so respect that you're doing in your corner of the world. And I've just loved our conversation this morning and I hope it goes out as a lighthouse and really a healing beam of light to hurting people around the world. So thank you for this opportunity to share. Thank you. Okay, for the show notes, go to thesoulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions, sexual deception and betrayal. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.